Well, good morning, everyone. I just would like to just extend a thank you to the worship team. That was great. I, I really liked those songs and just really appreciated that time. And uh, Susan as well. You guys did a great job today. Back when I was uh, at a former church, I had a man and his wife come in and they were visiting the church. And as I would do, I would make a point to meet them and try to get with them during the week or talk with them. And he managed to come in and we were just chatting, getting to know each other. And he told me about all of his problems. He had a laundry list of problems. And it was a, they were pretty significant. I mean, he has some bad things going on in his life. But he said to me something I'll never forget. He said, Pastor, I'm giving God six months. If something doesn't change in my life in six months, then I'm writing the church off, writing God off, and I'm done. And I remember sitting there thinking, okay, so you're going to come to church for six months and get involved, and you're going to seemingly serve the Lord for six months, but if God doesn't give you what you want, you're going to drop by the wayside. And I remember thinking to myself, and I wanted to ask him, but I didn't because I wanted to give him his six months, but I wanted to ask him, why are you even coming? What's your point? What's your reason for coming here? What's your reason for your, this so-called devotion to God, this worship of God? What, what is it? And it you know, boiled down to basically, I want something. I want God to bless me. I want God to take care of my problems. I want God to fix it. And if God doesn't, then I'm done with God. And I think to myself, you know, um, there are a lot of Christians today who do the same thing. You know, why do you follow the Lord? Why do you walk with the Lord? Why are you devoted? Why do you come to church? Why do you work um, in Sunday school or nursery or women's ministry or whatever, or things that you do in the church? Why do you do it? Why do you give your money to church? If you were to nail it down and really be honest about why you're, why you're doing these things, what your motivation is, it would go along these lines. I do this because I want God to bless me. That's legitimate. The Bible talks about that, that God blesses us. Where I, or I do this because I want God to answer my prayers. There again, that's legitimate. Um, the Bible talks about God answering the prayer of a righteous man. I do this because I want my life to be easier. I want fewer problems. You know, the Bible talks about life goes a lot better with the Lord than without Him. I want this because I do this because I want God to protect me and take care of me, and I want all the things that, that the Bible talks about. So therefore, I'm doing this. I'm following the Lord. I'm going to church and doing what I'm supposed to do, because in the end, I want God to fix my life. Now, what is the difference in that and the gentleman that gave God six months? Because what has, I've seen happen over and over and over again are people will come into a church and they are basically doing that. They'll come to church for a while, and then all of a sudden they drop out, and you figure, well, maybe they just didn't like things about our church. But then I hear that they are not going to church anywhere. Yeah, old Joe and Sally left, and Lord, it's been two years since they left here, and they haven't been involved in any church anywhere. And so I began to wonder to myself, why did you come to start with? What were you looking for? Why did you drop out? Now today, what I want to do is this. I want to talk to you on that question. The question is this. 
that if God did not do anything for you, if God did not answer your prayers, if God did not protect you, if God did not bless you, would you still follow him? Some of you are thinking, well, no, I may not. And I think that says more about your devotion than anything else because I think a lot of us as believers have a very selfish devotion. Our devotion to God is based upon what God can do for me. That as long as God does for me, then I will cooperate and I will do my part and I will be a good Christian. But if God doesn't do what I want, then I'm out of here. You see, to me, this question and the way that we answer it and the way that we think about it is the real test of our, our devotion and our motives as to why we do the things we do. See, I think this is healthy for every Christian to begin, to begin to ask yourself these types of questions. Why do I do this? Why do I want to be a part of a church? And why do I devote my time? And why do I give my money? Why? I think that's, that's a, a legitimate question. And one of the hardest things for a pastor of a church to do is to try to motivate people to serve the Lord, to walk with the Lord, to honor the Lord, to be devoted to the Lord when their lives are falling apart. You know, you always get asked the question, well, why should I? You know, what is God doing for me? Where's God? And you know what? I don't have a clear-cut answer for that. God is still God, and I can't answer why he's working in your life the way that he does. But, you know, we're told in Scripture, and this is what we are to preach, is that we are to be disciples of Christ and followers of Christ and faithful to Christ and devoted to Christ. And it never says anything about only if he does what you want him to do. But yet we still ask that question, well, why should I? So today I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk about why you should. And I want to challenge you to really begin to ask yourself questions like this as it, re- as it relates to your faith and your devotion, your walk with the Lord. Now, I'm going to take you to a passage of Scripture. Let me set the stage for it, okay? This takes place the next day following the feeding of the 5,000. Now, remember the story. They came to hear him preach by the Sea of Galilee, and he preached all day, and they were getting hungry and had no food. And one little boy had a couple of fish and some loaves, and they gave it to him, and he multiplied it and fed approximately, really, 15,000 people. It was 5,000 men, the Bible tells us. This is one of the greatest miracles in the Bible. Did you know that? Outside of the resurrection of Christ, this is the only other miracle that is mentioned in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Others are, you know, two or three um, and so forth, but this is the only other one that's mentioned in all four. It's one of the great miracles of the Bible that took place. It impressed so many people, and they saw it happen. So this is the next day. Now, you know what happened that night, or maybe you don't. Jesus, what's a whole other story, is mad at the disciples. He walks across the Sea of Galilee heading to Capernaum. They're in a boat in the middle of a storm, and all of that situation takes place. And it, <clears throat> the Bible tells us that the next day, he's on the other side of this lake, basically is what it is, and the people are wondering, well, where did he go? And it picks up now in John chapter 6, and I'm going to read for you several of, the, uh, of this passage, about 10 or 11 verses. We're going to work our way through this and watch. 
It says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? In other words, how did you do this? Well, I walked <laughs> across the water. But I, that's in the whole other story, like I said. In verse 26, now watch, because this goes to the heart of the issue with these people. Now watch this. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Ooh, what an indictment. Here they are. Now, they're the ones that of the 15,000 or so that were there that day. And a lot of them have made their way around or got into boats and gone across the lake to find him. They find him in, I think it was Capernaum. And they say, well, you know, where'd you go? We were doing so good. And he knew what their heart was. And he says to them, the only reason you're looking for me is because you want more food. You want me to satisfy the problem you've got. You want me to deal with this issue in your life and satisfy this for you, and that's the only reason you're here. Verse 27, he says, Do not work for food that spoils, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. In other words, here's what Jesus did so often in the Bible. They are talking about and focusing on a physical problem or a physical need, and he's making a spiritual application or teaching a spiritual lesson. And it's like a railroad ties, or rails, they just never meet. It's like Jesus is talking one thing, they're thinking another, and this is what's happening here. They're still wanting food, as you'll see in a moment. He's turning it around now to give them a spiritual lesson. You're looking for food, and all it's going to do is you're going to eat it, and it's going to be gone, and a couple hours later you're going to be hungry again. When, in essence, what you ought to be looking for is the eternal food that I can give you. So that's, this is what he's talking about, and this is the one. He says, I'm the one that he has sent to tell you this. So in verse 28, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Okay, if there's food out there that's going to satisfy us eternally, then, hey, give it to us. Again, food to eat is what they're thinking. What does God require us to do? We'll do it. Jesus turns it around. Spiritual lesson. Here's what he says. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. This is the work that God is requiring of you. And it's not the spiritual food, I mean the, the earthly food, the, the bread, get off of that. He said, but this is what's going to satisfy your soul, is that you believe on the one he has sent. This is the work. Listen, my friend, this is a powerful statement. Because any time in the future anybody ever asks you about what do I have to do to be saved, what do I have to do to do the works that God would require of me, this is it. This is the work that God requires, that you believe on him whom he has sent. All right, verse 30. They say, so they ask then, okay, then what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, they're saying, okay, hey, we'll go with that. Give us something to eat. Give us a sign. Do it again. You took the bread and the the fish and you multiplied it and fed all of these people. It was miraculous. That smoked fish was great. What about some broiled fish this time? Grilled fish. What about a little tartar sauce? Whatever it is, we'll go with it. Just do it. Moses did it in the the wilderness. He gave them manna. 
Why don't you step up here, Jesus, and do this for us? Satisfy our hunger. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who has given you the bread of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us that bread. They're still wanting to be fed. Now let me tell you, because here's the point of this. What these people are doing is no different than what the man in Indiana did that time. I'm giving God six months. If he doesn't satisfy my hunger, my needs, my problems, then I'm out of here. They're doing the same thing. They're following for what they can get out of it. And I'm telling you that there are Christians and churches today who do the same thing. And it's evidenced by their devotion. It's evidenced by their commitment. We do the same things that they're doing here. I will follow you if you do something. Now, they wouldn't say that. But in the back of their minds, that's what they're thinking. And that's pretty much the reason why a lot of times people leave churches and never find another church, because that's what they're wanting. Why didn't Christ give them more food? Why didn't he heal more of them? Why didn't he cast out more demons? Why didn't he fix more poor people's problems? Why didn't he do all the things that people needed him to do and then would have solved all the issues? Same problems, same questions that Christians are asking today. Why doesn't God do more miracles? Why doesn't God heal more people? Why doesn't God solve more problems? And the answer then is the same as it is today. Because God is more interested in your spiritual well-being than your physical. Now that doesn't mean that he's not interested in those things. He does them. But let's face it, folks. If he came to cast out demons and to heal the sick and to give money to the poor, and to feed the hungry, then he failed. Because he only was only here three and a half years in the ministry. And the number of people that he affected that way was really kind of small. That's not the reason he came. And the whole reason he did those things, the whole reason he would feed these people on the side of a mountain, is that they would understand, this is who I am. And if you understand who I am and believe me, then life changes. If you follow me, life changes. But if all you do is focus on what I can do, like a circus, a sideshow, no, I'm not, I didn't come for that. So why follow him? Why follow him if he isn't going to solve my problems and do the things I want him to do? Why follow him if he isn't going to perform? See, he goes on in that chapter, in John chapter 6. And he talks about the food from heaven, and I'm the food, the, the, the bread of life, and so forth. And then he gets down to the part where he starts talking about, this is my flesh, and you need to eat it. You know, he's talking about just a, an application of, you've got to consume me by faith. You trust me. Well, it says in verse 66, and we're going to read verses 66 here through 69. It says, from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now, what does it mean, first of all, by disciples? Because there were a whole lot more than just the 12. There, were time, there was a time where he sent out 70 of his disciples. There was another time where he sent out 
Oh, gosh, I'm getting my numbers confused, but it might have been 120 at one time. There were a, a, a large number of people that followed him that were considered to be disciples. But when they starts talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, they said, that's about all I can take. And so they left. They didn't understand. Again, they're thinking physical. He's talking spiritual. Now watch. It says, from that time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now watch. He says, you do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Now watch what old Simon says. The guy that keeps sticking his foot in his mouth, he steps up. Big time. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Are you guys going to leave too? Where are we going to go, Lord? We're not here for the sideshow. We're not here because you make life easy. We're not here to get something from you. You're the one that holds in his hand eternal life. The message is clear and we've come to believe it and we're, we're following you and we're, we're all in. We're committed. We're devoted. Not selfish. Because I'm not here, Peter said, to get something from you. I'm here to serve you because of who you are. You know, God never did another thing for you and me. The fact that he saved our miserable souls is enough. It's enough. And so you and I then have to come to this question, you see. Why am I following him? Am I following him because, like Peter, I understand who he is and I understand that he is worthy of my devotion? that he's worthy of my praise and my worship? Or am I just following him like the crowd because deep down I want something from him? And I'm convinced, Christians, now listen, until you and I come to the point in our own hearts where we say that, Lord, we will follow you no matter what happens in our lives. No matter what we don't get, no matter how many prayers don't get answered, no matter how much of a mess our life may be, Father, we will serve you because of who you are. You are God. Peter said, you're God. Where else are we going to go? And that statement, it just should capture and it should be yours and mine. It should be the statement that we give when asked, okay, why do you follow him? Who else is there? He is God. He saved my soul. And what if he doesn't do this? And what if this happens? You know, we look at people's lives and unbelievers are always asking, well, you're a Christian. Aren't you mad at God because you lost that loved one? Why? He is God. Where else am I going to go? I serve him because he is the God of heaven, the Savior of my soul. That's discipleship. That's what it means. Now here's where we as believers have to move forward in our thinking. From this concept that God came to earth to make us happy. 
that God came to earth to take on a body so He could serve us, feed us, do miracles for us. To move away from that mentality to understanding that God came to bring you and me a message of eternal life and how He wants us to live here on this earth, what He expects of us as His disciples. And to be committed to Him simply because of who He is and no other reason. And following Christ, doing that, living that way, is going to cost you. It is. It's going to cost you. And Jesus kept telling the disciples that. He said, look, you're going to follow me and it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy and it's going to cost you something. Paul, for example, had no family. He lost and gave up all of his wealth, his reputation. He was beaten, shipwrecked, thrown in prison. Why didn't he quit? Where else are you going to go? This is God. And He deserves my devotion. Those twelve disciples, as far as we know, they all died martyrs' deaths. There are a couple we have questions about. Fed to the lions, torn in pieces, one thing or another. No selfish devotion there. Those guys were committed. They were all in. And whether God did anything for them or not, didn't matter. You know, look at Paul, my gosh. He lists all the things that he's done and, and the things that have happened to him and the hardships that he's had. And he says, I count it I don't care, he says. This whole idea of discipleship, Jesus brings it to a head in this statement. Now watch, it's in Luke chapter 14. A whole other situation where, where he's talking. He comes and he says this in Luke 14, 25 through 27. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said... If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Okay, so what is discipleship? Salvation is free. Whosoever comes, let him come and believe and accept the gift of God. Discipleship is moving past this selfish devotion that we all develop as believers. In moving into the realm of devotion that says to, to, to the Lord, I give you everything, no matter what. I expect nothing and I ask nothing. To hate my mother and father and children and so forth, is that really and truly what God wants? So much of Scripture is devoted to it, telling us how to live in those relationships. No, it's not. Again, he's making a point. He said, when you come to me, I'm asking you to give it all. If you want to follow me and be my disciple, then come on, but it's going to cost you. If you want to serve me and be devoted to me the way I want you to, yeah, it's going to be expensive. And you're going to enter into a relationship with me that is so devoted and such depth of devotion and love that your love for your mother and father is going to look like hate because it pales in comparison. That's what I'm asking of you. A lot of the disciples, they said, this is too much to ask, and they went home. It doesn't mean they were lost. It just means they weren't willing to make that commitment to walk in his footsteps. 
to you and me, the same message goes out. How devoted are you? The same question's always there. Why are you serving me? What do you want from me? Will you love me if I never do another thing for you? That's the big question. Will you? We all say, yes, we will, but would we really do it? Would we really be that committed? If he didn't do anything for me, would I be willing to sacrifice? Now I want to read you something. It's going to take a minute, okay? I'm not apologizing for that. I'm just warning you. Now, this is an excerpt from the book titled Radical by David Platt. Now, I want you to listen, okay, because he's talking about an experience that he had overseas in Asia. And he's telling about that experience. And this is what I want you to hear in relation to what I've just talked about. Listen to the, and compare, okay? Compare. Here we sit. Compare us to these people. Now, I know it's hard, because, and I'm not saying that, that because they have so little that they're better off. I'm just simply saying there's no selfish devotion here with them. But when you come to America, sometimes we fall into the trap of being devoted for selfish reasons. So watch. Imagine all the blinds closed on the windows of a dimly lit room. Twenty leaders from different churches in the area sat in a circle on the floor with their Bibles open. Some of them had sweat on their forehead after walking for miles to get there. Others were dirty from the dust in the village from where they had set out on bikes early that morning. They had gathered in secret. They had uh, intentionally come to this place at different times throughout the morning so as not to draw attention to the meeting that was occurring. They lived in a country in Asia where it is illegal for them to gather like this. If caught, they would lose their land, their jobs, their families, or their lives. I listened as they began sharing their stories of what God was doing in their churches. One man sat in the corner. He had a strong frame, and he, ser he served as the head of security, so to speak. Whenever a knock was heard at the door or a noise was made outside the window, everyone in the room would freeze in tension as this brother would go to make sure that everything was okay. As he spoke, his tough appearance soon revealed a tender heart. Some of the people in my church have been pulled away by a cult, he said. This particular cult is known for kidnapping believers, taking them to isolated locations and torturing them. Brothers and sisters having their tongues cut out, and this is not uncommon that this would happen. As he shared about the dangers his church members were facing, tears welled up in his eyes. He said, I am hurting. I need God's grace to lead my church through these attacks. A woman on the other side of the room spoke up next. Some of the members of my church were recently confronted by government officials, she continued. They threatened their families, saying that if they did not stop gathering to study the Bible, they were going to lose everything they had. She asked for prayer, saying, I need to know how to lead my church to follow Christ, even when it costs them everything. As I looked around the room, I saw that everyone was now in tears. The struggles expressed by the brother and sister were not isolated. They all looked at one another and said, we need to pray. 
Immediately they went to their knees. And with their faces on the ground, they began to cry out to God. Their prayers were marked less with grandiose theological language and more by heartfelt praise and pleading. Oh God, thank you for loving us. Oh God, we need you. Jesus, we give our lives to you and for you. Jesus, we trust you. They audibly wept before God as one leader after another prayed. After about an hour, the room drew to a silence, and they rose from the floor, humbled by what I, what I had just seen. I looked and I saw puddles of tears in a circle around the room. In the days since then, God has granted me many other opportunities to gather with believers in underground house churches in Asia. Men and women there are risking everything to follow Christ. On my first day with these believers, they simply asked me to lead them in a Bible study. Please meet us tomorrow at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So I put some thoughts together on the short Bible study and went to the designated location where there were about 20 house church leaders there waiting. I don't remember when we started, but I remember that eight hours later, we were still giving, are still going strong. I would study one passage and then I would ask, then they would ask about another. This would lead to another topic, then to another, and by the end of the day, the conversations had ranged from dreams and visions to tongues and the Trinity and everything else. In the late in the evening, it was late in the evening and they wanted to continue studying, but they needed to get back to their home. So they asked the two main church leaders and me, can we meet again tomorrow? I said, I would be glad to. Shall we meet in the same, at the same time? They responded, no, we want to start earlier in the day. I said, okay, how long would you like to study? They replied, all day. Thus began a process in which over the next 10 days, for 8 to 12 hours a day, we would gather to study the Word of God. They were so hungry. On the second day, I introduced these relatively new believers to the story of Nehemiah. I gave them the background and the history of, the Bible, of this Bible book and showed them in Nehemiah 8 the importance of God's Word. Afterward, we took a short break and I saw the leaders talking intently about something in small groups. A few minutes later, one of them approached me. We have never learned any of the truth like this before, and we want to learn more. Then she dropped the bomb. Would you be willing to teach us about all of the books of the Old Testament while you were here? I laughed, smiling. I said, all of the Old Testament? That would take a long time. By this time, others were joining the conversation, and they said, we will do whatever it takes. Most of us are farmers, and we work all day, but we will leave our fields unattended for the next couple of weeks if we can learn the Old Testament. So that's what we did. The next day, I walked them through an overview of the Old Testament. Then we started in Genesis, and in the days that followed, we plowed through the highlights and the main themes of every Old Testament book, 
Imagine teaching the Song of Solomon to a group of Asian believers, many of whom had never read it before, and just praying that they don't ask me any questions. On the next to the last day, we, were, we finished in Malachi. I had 12 more hours to teach and had no clue what to say. Once you've taught Habakkuk, what else is there to cover? So the last, on the last day, I started teaching on random subjects. But within an hour, I was interrupted by one of the leaders. We have a problem, he said. Worried that I had said something wrong, I responded, then what's the matter? He replied, you have taught us the Old Testament, but have not taught us the New Testament. I smiled, but he was serious. We would like to learn the New Testament today, he said. As other leaders across the room nodded, I had no choice for the next 11 hours, we walked briskly from Matthew to Revelation. Just imagine going to a worship gathering in one of those house churches. Not an all-day training in the Word, just a, a normal three-hour worship service late in the evening. The Asian believer who is taking you gives you instructions. Put on, a dark, put on dark pants and jacket and a hood. We never... We will, we will put you in the back of our car and drive you into the village. Please keep your hood on and your face down. When you arrive in the village under the cover of night, another Asian believer meets you at the door. He says, follow me. With your hood over your head, you crawl out of the car, keeping your face toward the ground. You begin to walk with your eyes fixed on the feet of the man in front of you as he leads you down a long and winding path with a small flashlight. You hear more and more footsteps around you as you progress down the trail. Then finally, you round the corner and walk into a small room. And despite its size, 60 believers are crammed into it. There are all ages, from precious little girls to 70-year-old men. They are sitting either on the floor or on small stools, lined shoulder to shoulder, huddled together with their Bibles in their laps. The roof is low and one light bulb dangles in the middle of the ceiling as the sole source of illumination. There's no sound system. There's no band. There's no guitar. There's no entertainment. There's no cushioned chairs. No heated or air-conditioned building. Nothing but the people of God and the Word of God. And strangely, that's enough. God's Word is enough for millions of believers who gather in house churches just like this one. His Word is enough for millions of other believers who huddled in African jungles, South American rainforests, and Middle Eastern cities. The question is, is it enough for you? Now, I read that to you because it just contrasts, I think, what I'm talking about here. That so many times we as believers fall into the trap of thinking that Christianity is all about what God can do for us. And that's really not it at all. Because it's just like what Peter said when asked, are you going to leave too? He said, why should I? Because you have the words of eternal life. You're God. Why would I leave? And suffer? Yeah, he suffered. He suffered, just like the rest of them. But they were committed. They were faithful. And it wasn't a selfish commitment either. It was real. So please don't 
serve the Lord expecting something from him. Because it may or may not come. There are many things that God does for us. And I don't want to imply that he doesn't. I want to ask you the question, and you have to ask this to yourself. If it never comes, will I still serve him? I want to encourage you to say yes and to mean it. To be committed to him no matter what. There will never, ever be a better life to live. There really won't. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow here before you, Father, we are humbled. We are humbled by the devotion of other people that have so much less than we do. Father, their problems are so much greater than ours. And Father, sometimes we all have done this. We've all looked up to heaven and say, God, where are you? And if you're not going to help me, then to heck with you. We've done it. Maybe not directly, but indirectly by our actions. Father, we're not committed to a church. We're not committed to you. We're not committed to anything. And it seems to be getting worse in this world. Father, my prayer for these people, my prayer for this church, is that their devotion to you would not be selfish. And when asked, why do you do that? They would simply answer, because you are God and you deserve it. Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor. Praise the Lord. If you're here visiting with us this morning, we say thank you so much for coming and and spending some time with us and worshiping with us. You truly can leave here this morning and say you heard the essence of the gospel. You really can. We thank you so much for coming. If you enjoyed it, you please tell other people. You didn't let us know, so we might can make a change or so. Ladies, don't forget that tomorrow, it's tomorrow evening, six thirty, is in the fellowship hall. The women's the women's annual Christmas dinner will be held, and uh, you have an opportunity to be a part of. It. If you've not signed up, you'd like to stop at the welcome desk on your way out, please, and uh, take care of that. Children's ministry is going to have a a dough holy night. Dough, holy night, like the dough on cookies? Oh, well, okay. Uh, they're going to be cooking and, and baking cookies here on, on Saturday, December the 12th. Uh, they're going to have a good time together, and they're going to hear the story of Jesus. And uh, so keep that in mind if you have children that will be a part of that. Okay? We need some prayer warriors on Wednesday nights, 6 o'clock, to pray. Okay? All right. You have something you want to say? Hey, guys. Uh, so this is not in the bulletin, but in two weeks on uh, Friday the 18th. Is that right, Cody? All right. So the women's ministry has uh, kind of gotten involved. Elaine came to us, to Cody and I. Cody, raise your hand. 
All right, so Cody helps out with Call to Recovery, and they want to help us do a little dinner for the Call to Recovery group. The recovery group is kind of unique, kind of kind of like the story that Pastor Dave just gave us. Uh, there's a whole lot of love back there. For a lot of these folks, it's the only church that they'll ever, it's the only Jesus Christ they'll ever see. Just because they're, some of them are so self-condemned and uh, dirty feeling uh, that they will never come into the pretty doors of a church building. They'd rather come into the rusty side door in a dirt parking lot, into a fellowship hall, into a recovery room. So we're going to love on them with a Christmas dinner on Friday the 18th at our meeting, at our C2R meeting at 530. And so Elaine said, well, how can we help with a women's ministry? How can we help? And uh, so she said, what if I put a list out here on the on the uh Welcome Center, thank you, <laughs> on the Welcome Center. And if anybody wants to sign up to bring a dish, donate a dollar or a five or a ten, or if they want to bring some tea or rolls or whatever, I said, yeah, that'd be great. So I'm making an opportunity. I'm not begging for money or food or anything like that. I'm just offering an opportunity. If you feel something in your heart and you want to love somebody by giving back, or if you have time to help set up, or if you have any idea of anything that's in your heart that you might want to do, just see Cody or myself or Elaine. Elaine's not here this morning, uh, but you can see any of us, and we can help you fill that need. So anyway, my name's Todd. If you don't know me, my name's Todd, and that's all I got. Hallelujah. All right. Okay. Let me remind you, then we're going to dismiss. If we're not, we're still not passing the plate for various reasons, but you do have the opportunity to give. There's an offering box back there in the back as you go out the door. It's on that table. We would encourage you to just drop your offering in that box on the way out and be faithful to your church in that area, okay? Stand and let's be dismissed. All right, thank you so much for being here this morning, and let's pray. Father, thank you. For the opportunity to come, thank you, Father, for the privilege it's ours to come. Father, we thank you for the for the message this morning. We thank you for.